Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke. It's a publicist joke that I actually wrote. Did you hear about the publicist that tried to sell her soul to the devil? The devil said, You must be kidding. We all know publicists don't have souls. Thank you. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Nuneman from APM American Public Media. This is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win this week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from actor and apparently demon David Allen Greer. That'll help break the ice. He stars in the new movie Peoples. He'll be back later to answer your etiquette questions. Plus, we'll speak with Noah Baumbach, writer-director of the new movie Francis Ha. Also coming up, autism expert Temple Grandin diagnoses Mr. Spock and a new song from a group called Savages. As opposed to a group of savages. I don't know. Never met them. Me neither. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Ray Harryhausen was a visionary of stop-motion animation. Delaware thus becomes the 11th state to legalize same-sex marriage. The Dow gained 87 points to close above 15,000 for the first time ever. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Sadie Stein. She is the deputy editor of the Paris Review. Sadie What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, I've been very intrigued by a new study that's come out of Reading, England. Okay. Which is about a newly discovered group of words that some linguists feel are up to 15,000 years old. These are English words that have lasted 15,000 years. Well, that's the thing. They're sort of core words in all languages is the theory. Ah. It's a group of 200 words, mother, father, worm, fire, See, I get all of these except worm. Why has worm been so important to us Worms play a pretty big role in my life. I can't speak to (laughs) yours, but it's a word I find myself using hundreds of times a day. Well, you're a bookworm. You work at the Paris Review. I see. Exactly. Wow. I didn't think that nerds survived that early on. We're like cockroaches. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be here after the apocalypse. Exactly. Weird. So how long did people think words lasted until this study came out? The commonly held wisdom, as I understand it, is that words have a lifespan of eight to 9,000 years. So Mm. this is suggesting that they're actually much older, this Mm. one core group of words. And it's still controversial, but a very interesting theory. I wonder how long the word Groupon is going to last. <laughs> I, I think that has a lasting place in the lexicon. 8,000 seconds. <laughs> so are there enough of these words that you could put together an entire phrase or a few sentences? Or? The Washington Post rather laboriously put together an entire paragraph made up of All the right, words. Let's hear it. You, hear me, give this fire to that old man. Pull the black worm off the bark and give it to the mother. And no spitting in the ashes. Sounds like an odd future song. <laughs> this is the one, the, the one series of words you could say to our ancestors 15,000 years ago and be understood. Well, if there's a time machine invented, we know exactly <laughs> what to say. Sadie Stein, thank you so much for the small talk, literally. Thank you for having me. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history's old faithful, except instead of boiling water, it fires out piping hot booze. God bless America. Yeah. First, the history. This week, back in 1671, one of the most daring thefts ever took place. Your party guests won't have heard of it, unless they're British. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Colonel Thomas Blood was the luckiest thief in history. Fate hadn't always smiled on him. 
Early in England's civil wars, he'd been given a bunch of land when he helped overthrow the monarchy, only to have it all taken away when the monarchy was restored in 1660. Needless to say, that didn't give him a higher opinion of royalty. So he hatched a series of schemes for payback, like storming an Irish castle to kidnap a duke. Didn't go well. Blood barely escaped with his life. But that didn't dissuade him from his most notorious plot, to steal the crown jewels. His main weapon, charisma. Over the course of weeks, Blood befriended the Tower of London's main guard. Then, one May night, he convinced the guy to show him and some pals the jewels, at which point they clocked him and got to work. Blood flattened a bejeweled crown with a mallet and hid it in his coat. Another guy shoved a gold orb down his pants. Then they fled the scene. And were totally caught. But instead of being hung, stoned, beheaded, or all three, King Charles pardoned Blood and gave him back some of his confiscated land. Some say because Blood was just so darn charming. Others say because Charles had hired Blood to steal the jewels so the king could use them to pay off debts. Either way, Colonel Blood became a national celebrity. In fact, he got such a rep as a trickster that after he passed away in 1680, people demanded the corpse be exhumed to prove he was really dead. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. We are speaking with Andy Westlake, bar manager of The Living Room at Tower Bridge. That's less than a mile from the Tower of London, home of the Crown Jewels. Andy, what drink did that story inspire? I tried to uh, draw out a lot of the Britishness. I hope so. As I, I know the Americans love us Brits deep down. We do. And you despite, say you do. Despite your taxation with that representation thing. Yes. Well, uh, I've called the drink Bloody Cheek, uh, which is a, a British term. Yeah, like, like as in chutzpah, like having the cojones to steal the yeah, crown jewels. Having, yeah, literally having the cojones to do it, which Colonel Thomas Blood uh, apparently did. I'm glad you didn't call it the bloody cojones, though. No, I didn't. No, no, no. It's not a Mexican drink. <laughs> All right, so what what is in this thing? Okay, um, gin-based drink. It's going to use Bombay Sapphire London gin. Of course. The Crown Jewels also had sapphires in it, so I thought it played quite well. Yes. Uh, then the other alcoholic part is uh, one ounce of Dubonnet, the favorite tipple of the Queen, our present Queen Elizabeth II. Really? Um, so uh, it is indeed. We know this for sure? It is indeed, yeah. Look it up on the internet. It's there. I, I hope they didn't pay her an endorsement fee because she, she doesn't need it. I don't believe so. I don't believe so. She can... Uh, she can give me a knighthood, though, if she wants. <laughs> uh, to carry on with the drink, it's uh, you just add half an ounce of lemon juice and half an ounce of simple sugar syrup. Okay. And then the mixer part of it, we're going to use an ounce and a half of preferably freshly squeezed blood orange juice. So there's your Captain Blood. There, there it is. There it Any is. Any garnish for this thing? Um, a blood orange wheel. And then finally, just on the top, could you serve the drink over crushed ice? And if you put a, a big crushed ice crown on the top, because I believe Colonel Blood crushed the crown before he tried to steal it, yeah, uh, I thought it was an apt finish to the tipple. That's beautiful, but it sounds like you'd practically have to be a royal to have the time to assemble this thing. No, no, just, just a little bit of a, a sense of adventure. And, Brendan, there is also a slight variation of that drink. 
I should tell you. Okay. Andy suggests wrapping the blood orange garnish in gold leaf. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. If you're just feeling low-key or you're Beyonce. <laughs> that's right. It's very understated. <laughs> For Queen Elizabeth, that's finger food, actually. You get a gold-wrapped orange, and that's delicious. Mm. Gold-wrapped hot wings when she has the boys over to watch some soccer. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. And Jaeger shots. Anyway, folks, uh, you'll find this and other fancy cocktails on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. Our guest is award-winning cartoonist Gilbert Hernandez. The New York Times calls him one of the greatest craftsmen of modern comics. He co-created Love and Rockets, one of the most influential alternative comic books of the 1980s. Here he is to describe his latest work and his list. Hi, kids. This is Gilbert Hernandez, co-creator of Love and Rockets. And I wanted to talk about my new comic book that just came out. It's called Marble Season, and it's about growing up in the 1960s. And it's mostly about a 10-year-old boy, pretty much who I am, who I was at the time, basically obsessed with comic books and TV shows and monster movies and whatever else a 10-year-old was into in 1965. So here's a list of my favorite kids' comics of those days. Comic books that weren't about superheroes, that were about just little kids growing up, that heavily influenced me. Everything's Archie. One would be Little Archie Comics. Archie's here. Betty's here. Little Archie Comics were about the character Archie that we knew as teenager, but they were about when he was a little kid. And the artist, Bob Balling, who drew these and wrote these stories, were more, was more interested in telling personal stories. As long as he kept them clean, uh, they let him do whatever he wanted to. Come on, let's go with the Archie Show. Uh, one story in particular is a story called The Long Walk. Little Archie is walking home, little Veronica from school, and little Betty is, is jealous. She finds out that little Archie is swayed to do this because... Veronica is buying him a soda each time he walks her home. So Betty tries the same trick. So he decides to turn it on Betty. Like, um, I'll show her that she can't trick me into this. They do the walk, but little Archie treats her so badly, they take her to like a swamp, he takes her to this rainstorm, he takes her through a briar patch, and she's her clothes are all shredded, and everybody's just laughing at her. And little Archie sees this, and he goes, what the hell have I done? So he runs up to Betty and just says... That was the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. I'll walk home with you every day after school, but you don't have to buy me a soda. It just seems so real about kids being in love and how it can never go right. <laughs> Especially for, it doesn't go right for adults. You know, little kids falling in love, it, it's almost a disaster. But, he, you know, the story has this little light at the end of the tunnel that maybe, you know, you might have happy moments within this, you know, this hell <laughs> that we go through. No other comics had that touch that I was aware of at the time. Number two on my list would probably be the uh, Dennis the Menace comics. Artist named uh, Owen Fitzgerald that originally was doing comics like uh, Bob Hope comics or uh, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis comics. And what he brought to it was just this body language and the tone of the stories was so perfect to what felt like a reflection of real life to me. Now, this is not a life that I, I, I knew. This is, these are, you know, white Christian family. <laughs> but I completely related to him. Uh, and I relate to the idea that I never understood Dennis the Menace till a little kid had to explain to me the character. He's a five-year-old kid who doesn't understand anything. 
So he basically wrecks everything because he doesn't get it. But he's having a great time, and then he never looks back. He never reflects. He just went forward completely, because I was pretty reserved as a kid. And characters like that, that's how I wanted to be. Uh, last but not least would be just about every kid comic I read besides those. Um, there was comic books about babies called Sugar and Spikes. There was uh, kid comics about little kids with strange obsessions. I was a little girl character called Little Dot who was just obsessed with dots. as <laughs> another little character called Little Lotta, and she was just obsessed with food. But at least, you know, when she ate the food, she had super strength like Popeye, so that was kind of cool. Kid comics went, were on the wane at the end of the 60s, and that's the one big criticism I have about comic books in the 70s. The emphasis on superheroes was so dominant. Superhero comics were basically what comic books were. But, you know, I might sound hypocritical here, but I, I am going to go see Iron Man 3, and I can't wait to see Superman next month. Of course. <laughs> Comic artist Gilbert Hernandez, co-creator of Love and Rockets, his new graphic novel Marblehead is out now. Enrico, I love that there was an entire comic book about dots. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I would, think I could get into that. Yeah, I want to see the superhero movie treatment for the dot comics. Just Who, who would play the dot? I don't know. <laughs> I think Downey Jr. could do it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, coming up, filmmaker Noah Baumbach celebrates and mourns for New York City when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, travel writer Matt Gross explains how to survive extreme travel. And later, actor and comic David Allen Greer tells you why you should get that cough checked out. Yeah. Rico, you should. But Sorry. first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's filmmaker Noah Baumbach. Among his many movies are Greenberg and The Squid and the Whale, which won him a bunch of Sundance Awards and an Oscar nomination for Best Screenplay. He also helped write Wes Anderson's films The Life Aquatic and Fantastic Mr. Fox. His new movie comes out next weekend. He co-wrote it with his star and real-life girlfriend Greta Gerwig, and it's called Francis Ha. When I spoke with Noah, I started by trying to summarize it. It is about, I guess, goofy would be a word to use, and irrepressible young dancer trying to stay positive in modern-day New York City. And Noah, it is an honor. Thank you. I hope that wasn't too reductive a summary of the movie. That's how I saw it. No, I think that's, that, that was actually a pretty good summation. She's irrepressible, would you say? And goofy, I suppose. <laughs> there we go. Speaking of which, I am sure that you get this all the time, but... I came out of this movie yesterday after fighting through traffic and not being in a good mood in an amazing mood. Like it was a, it's a really delightful movie, and that was completely unexpected for one of your films, which are known for being very funny but also emotionally very dark. Why this movie at this time? What possessed you? <laughs> well, I, it seemed it, it was the right movie for that character, and I wanted to do something where Greta could kind of do all that she can do. I mean, I, I, I loved working with her on Greenberg, and I'd always felt that her performance in Greenberg had a lot of humor in it, but the nature of that movie, I think... Which is about a fairly bitter older man. Right, and uh, that movie had the right movie for that character. But I, with Frances, as we started to write about her and, and the story started to take shape, it was just clear from the beginning that the movie should reward this character for struggling. And the character had such joy and hope and romance sort of built into her that I felt the movie should reflect that. So you weren't 
wrong to feel good afterward. <laughs> Thanks for justifying my emotion. I feel like that is typical. I mean, is, is she that kind of a muse, I guess? I mean, we've had her on the show. She is a very kind of effervescent personality. And I feel like the movies that she's been in, you know, the last Whit Stillman movie, Damsels in Distress, all of these movies coming out at a time where you could argue the world is a very dark place. Suddenly, they're just like these beams of sunshine in the darkness. Do you attribute that totally to her? Or are you reacting a little bit to the darkness in the world? Well, I, I was motivated to make this movie in large part to work with Greta again, but then Greta also became my collaborator and, and co-wrote it with me. So it was inspired by her, but then actually it was created with her. So it's, you know, it would be reductive to call her a muse. I mean, I, I definitely have those feelings for her, but I actually, she, you know, made this with me. So I, I, I don't know what that's called. Is, that, is there a word for that? <laughs> I guess it's just a, a collaborator. collaborator. But I, I, it's less that, but more like, is there, was there a reaction maybe to, for both of you to the world at large in making a movie that's upbeat? Well, the movie's upbeat, but it's very much I mean, if you actually break it down, it's about struggling in contemporary New York, not having money. Um, I mean, it's a movie where figuring out whether or not you're going to pay the surcharge at an ATM machine, it, you know. There's a scene where Greta has to decide whether or not to take money out of an ATM because she's going to be charged for it. Right. And that's a big moment in the movie. I mean, it, you know, it is a joyful, hopeful movie, but it's also very much about the stark realities of trying to live a bohemian life in a city that no longer allows for that. Well, that, this was going to be my next question. It has been, this is about kind of late 20-something bohemians struggling in New York. It's been, alas, for both of us a long time since we've been 20-something bohemian artists struggling in a city. How has it changed, do you feel? Well, you know, I mean, when I graduated college, what was then Generation X, it was there was a whole thing of oh, we're all graduating into the worst economy and since the yeah. Great Depression. So in some ways it hasn't changed at all. But I still think there was still a chance, more so in Brooklyn at that time, to live on a starting salary at wherever you're going to start out at and, and still be able to afford a place and, and even hope to live in Manhattan. You know, and I think now the hope to live in Manhattan that way is is gone and and yeah. but we also I wanted to shoot a kind of beautiful movie about New York and sh you know it's in black and white it has lush romantic music I mean it's we I was both celebrating New York and maybe mourning a, a New York that has passed us now we have two questions that we ask everybody on the show the first one is if we were to meet you at a dinner party what question should we not ask you um, well, as a filmmaker, a question I don't like being asked is, when are you going to make a big-budget studio movie or another version of that? Is any interest in doing a superhero? Does Hollywood come knocking? Like that kind of, you know, the, anything that sort of has that, as if what I'm doing is somehow an audition for when I actually am going to make a big studio movie. I, so to have to somehow find myself explaining my career is, is one of choice. <laughs> but it's interesting because I think I've actually brought this up on the show before, so I hope people don't mind. But I think it was David Denby who said that that is the way Hollywood seems to be laid out now. Like you do low budget, very personal, quirky films. And then your reward is to make a completely non-personal special effects laden action movie. Right. Right. So that's why people are asking, because that's kind of the way it goes. Right. They think the culture asks for it or somehow that that's the way it's supposed to go. I, but I actually think if you ask them, like, what do you value? They'd say, oh, I much prefer to see, you know, movies like you make. Oh, there's nothing for me in the multiplex. But they still find themselves asking it. Yeah. 
are you going to sell out? Basically is yeah, the thing. Yeah, when will you sell out? All right, well, here's, a, here's kind of the reverse of that, our second question. Tell us something we don't know. And this can be about anything. It's something about yourself that you haven't revealed in an interview before or just like a piece of trivia. Well, at my favorite restaurant in New York, Bar Pedi, they don't actually have spaghetti and meatballs on the menu, but they do have meatballs and you can, they have spaghetti and they will, if you ask for them together, you can get it and it's great. <laughs> That's small, but I will actually use that information the next time in, I'm in New York City. Yeah, I, I mean, that was a big discovery for me. <laughs> That's your next film. It's a very small concept. It's, there's a lot of cinema in that. Yeah. It's not a superhero movie, but you know. You put a cape on it. Wow, Rico, I totally remember that era when, like, one ATM charge could yeah. totally break your budget. Of course. I, I actually remember in college having to find ATMs that dispensed cash in $5 increments because I couldn't afford to take out a 10. <laughs> That's yeah. sad. And once you added in ATM fees, you'd have to feed it a dollar? That was ridiculous. That shouldn't be allowed. to eavesdrop. Matt Gross traveled the world and wrote about it for top newspapers and magazines. His new book, The Turk Who Loved Apples, is a collection of unpublished essays. This week we overhear him tell an extreme tale. Hi, uh, my name is Matt Gross. I used to be a writer for the New York Times travel section. I wrote the Frugal Traveler column, which took me all around the world. One of the things that traveling on a frugal budget teaches you is that you at some point have to cede control and you have to be okay with that. Money lets us have the illusion of control. Taking that money away allows us to see that we can have great experiences that we don't intend on, that we don't plan on, and that we have no control over. When I started writing the Frugal Traveler column, uh, I did it with a three-month trip around the world. Along the way, I landed in Kyrgyzstan, and the first thing you need to know about Kyrgyzstan is that it's 93% mountains. I woke up in my yurt really, really excited for the day. Uh, I was going to be riding horses up into the mountains with a guide named Bakut. Unfortunately, he was a bit late that day, so I drank really a lot of tea, uh, which, which proved to be quite useful. So I walked outside, and there he was. He was probably a few inches shorter than me, and I'm not very tall. He had gold teeth. That's what I remember most. He asked me if I'd ever ridden before, and I thought back to when I was 13, and I rode a horse once at camp, and I, I said yes, and he said, oh, okay, good. He put me on the horse. He said, pull left, go left. Pull right, go right. Pull back, stop. Go forward, say, choot, choot. And I said, choot, and the horse went forward, and we were off. went up through these canyons and into these beautiful meadows. About halfway up, I realized that I'd forgotten to bring any water with me. And I asked Bakut if this was okay, and he said, oh, it's no problem. There's freshwater springs up there. We'll be okay. Or he said something like this. His English was, you know, a little bit shaky, and my Russian and my Kyrgyz were really... I'm, there was no Russian or Kyrgyz in me at all. For most of the day, it was wonderful. We were riding the horses, the sun was out, it was nice and cool. But you know, as the day wore on, I started to wonder, where were these freshwater springs that Bakut had told me about? 
how exactly were we going to get down, especially since the, as we rode on, the, the landscape became drier and drier and drier until finally we found ourselves on a sort of Looney Tunes cliff. If you've watched uh, the, the Roadrunner Wiley Coyote cartoons, you'll know this landscape. Sandy, rough cliffs, no easy slopes down. And there I was with two stubborn horses, a gold-toothed guide named Bakut, and no water, trying to drag the horses down a very, very steep ledge. Bakut just yanked on their reins, just leaning his whole body over the edge of the cliff. Like, choot, choot, choot. And then at one point... He looked over at me and smiled, his gold teeth glinting in the afternoon sunshine, and he said, Extreme. I try to think about how this could end up. Bakut pulls the horse, they slip, they fall to their deaths, which in a way would sort of free me up. I could then tie up the other horse, walk back to the camp a bit dehydrated, find people to, you know, recover his mangled body. I figured if I could imagine everything, none of it would ever actually happen. Something else miraculous would happen. And that something miraculous was the horse budged. It started down the path. Bakut led it down to a safe area. And I followed him down. And all of a sudden we were back in this lush valley in southern Kyrgyzstan. In front of us opened up an apricot grove fed by a natural spring. And we sat there and we ate and we drank our fill. Sometimes at the point when it's most extreme, the best way to enjoy those experiences rather than be terrified by them is to say, as much as I'm going to participate in the experience, I am also going to step outside and watch it. And by stepping outside of it, I'm actually going to gain a bit of control over it. I'm going to start to see it in perspective. And that's an incredible tool for travel, wherever you are whether you're in the mountains of Kyrgyzstan or lost in Paris. Travel writer Matt Gross, his new essay collection just came out. It's called The Turk Who Loved Apples and Other Tales of Losing My Way Around the World. And you found the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now, the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. Enrico, spring harvest is happening, which means it's time to confront the annual question. Yes, Claritin or Allegra? It's a terrible choice. <laughs> there, there is that question, yes. Indeed. But also, should I join a CSA? Oh. CSA, for people who don't know, stands for Community Supported Agriculture. Right. Basically, you pay a chunk of money to a farm, and each week through the growing season, they give you a box full of veggies from their harvest. Right. But is it worth it? To find out, I met with food writer Kathy Irway on the website Sirius Eats this week. She listed the pros and cons of CSAs. When we met, I asked her to tell me her biggest pro. I think that it should be actually the incentive to cook more really good fresh food. Mm. I think that it motivates you and it makes you feel like it's an urgent need to, to use it up. And it's really good for you. And you're also supporting Farms. I share the same pro with you. So I think the best thing a CSA box does is it guilts you. <laughs> like if you don't eat this food quickly enough, it's going to go bad, mm-hmm. and then you wasted money, and there's rotting fruit and f- fruits and vegetables in your house, and that makes you feel awful. Mm-hmm. So you cook more. That's as big as pro. But then you were talking about another pro, which is 
it also helps with farms. So how, how does it help farms? Well, basically, you're giving them an upfront payment at the beginning of a season. And a lot of things are in the air for a typical small farm, weather conditions, diseases, um, just a slow day at the market. These can all affect their bottom line. It is so fragile. And you're ensuring this farm sales throughout the season, which is great. And it helps them be able to plan better for the next year. It helps them just understand how much to grow and be a little bit more financially stable. All right. So one of the reasons it helps farms is because it gives them a stable form of income no matter what happens. But that's another reason why it might not make sense for consumers because after you pay for your share, you have to accept whatever vegetables they give you, you know, whether they're good or bad. You definitely have no control over the quality of a certain bunch of Swiss chard. But I think overall, uh, most farms I've known try really hard to please their CSA members because they want more members. Yeah. And think of you as a member as their VIP customers. Ooh, I like thinking of it as a VIP, veggie VIP. Um, okay, but here, here's another problem with CSA boxes. You get the box, you open it up, and you see you've received one bunch of something you like, like kale or something, and then 15 bunches uh, of nettles or something you might not be into ooh. that much. Well, you have to really just get outside of your comfort zone and make <laughs> some nettle tea. Um, make uh, some, yeah, net, stinging nettle tea. I know, but it's how really much nettle tea can a man drink in a, in a week? You know? Well, this allows you to play around with ingredients you would never have thought to buy yeah. originally. And it'll expand your horizon. And that's basically what you're signing up for. So you should be prepared for that. So one of the things you're saying is when you get a CSA box, this isn't like a stable delivery system for a certain amount of vegetables. It's not like Fresh mm-hmm. Direct or something online. There's an element of, of novelty to it. Like Absolutely. Okay. And you should be excited about it, or it's something that you could be excited about. <laughs> no, I, I can see being excited about that, but it is something to consider. So what is your, what is, we found out what you think the biggest pro CSA point is. What about con? Because you, you did lay out some cons. I think that the biggest con is basically the biggest problem everyone has with CSAs is that it is unpredictable. You don't get to pick out something for a recipe, say, that you want to make. You don't have enough of your kale that you really like. Yeah. And people feel a sort of frustration and they might want to shop again and then think, okay, I just wasted all my money on this week's share. I think there's an element of control you have to give up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, when you're eating seasonally, you kind of have to give up control anyway. You can't have tomatoes in December, you know, eggplants in June. Mm. Yeah. You have to eat within the season. And being a part of CSA is a very specific and very fully realized uh, example of that. What if you, say, work on a radio show, you have really long hours, and, you know, two or three days in the middle of the week, you don't get home to cook because you just simply don't have time to cook? Actually, with CSA shares, a lot of them you don't have to cook. Just don't even think about it. What do you just mean? don't cook. What, then what am I supposed to do with the squash when it's raw? Um, maybe... Just steam it very lightly, shred it to, for a salad with like, some lemon and olive oil. Doesn't that count as cooking, though, a little bit? Yeah, preparing it. Mm. But it's it's very slightly prepared. And I think that this 
type of cooking, you know, rustic preparations work so well for a CSA share because the food is really at its prime. It's mm-hmm. really fresh and it's flavorful, so it really doesn't need too much adulteration. Would you consider this a CSA? A weekly radio show that delivers you a little bit of cult, like a little bit of music, like an mm-hmm. interview with someone interesting, tells you about books coming up and and culture once a week. Yeah, sure. But uh, I mean, we're leaving at we're using um CS and then filling in the blank here cuz agriculture is is what Oh, the, right. Yeah. So that would be community supported something. Our show. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I never thought of us as a CSA, but it's true. You you donate to public radio, chunk of cash. And then you don't even have to pick us up. We just arrive in your ears every week. It's great. And we're nettleless. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. And we taste good steamed. With oil. Is that a little butter or oil, yeah. <laughs> Folks, coming up, autism expert Temple Grandin is going to talk about her dinner party training. Yeah. And actor David Alan Greer adjudicates your etiquette questions. I've already begun judging you. Be afraid when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, we hear a new song from the red hot band Savages, and scientist Temple Grandin talks about her new book, The Autistic Brain Thinking Across the Spectrum, and also about her first public radio appearance. By the time that interview was over, my head was just about on the table. Shame on you, Terry Gross. But first up, yes. it's time for our etiquette segment. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is actor and comic David Alan Greer. An he, etiquette aficionado. That's, that's right. Now you are. And by the way, excuse me. <laughs> that was nice. It's very polite, David. My bad. He has won acclaim both for his etiquette expertise and his acting in the Broadway plays Dream Girls, David Mamet's Race, last year's Porgy and Bess, for which he earned his third Tony nomination. Fans of 90s TV will remember him from the sketch show In Living Color, where, among other characters, he played the culture critic that rated art not in stars, <laughs> but in snaps. Hmm. He stars in the new comedy movie Peoples. It is out this weekend, and David, welcome. Hi. Thanks for coming. That was polite. Hi. Well, it, it was also disarming. One, you don't want to ever be too formal. That's right. How do you Good do? Good day, sir. It is a pleasure to meet your acquaintance. <laughs> yeah, I would think you're going to smack me with a glove <laughs> exactly. if you say that. Dad, is or, that you? <laughs> exactly. Or deposition time. <laughs> so let's let's talk about the movies for a minute. This is it's about this lovable kind of schlubby guy, who Craig. Yes, Craig, that's not you. Craig Robinson's character, yeah. And he wants to win over his girlfriend's upper crust family, yes. of which you are the patriarch. I am. And he's kind of a snob, and you seem to really enjoy the hell playing that guy. It's awesome. I mean, uh, you know, to look down on people, I do it for free. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, this guy, he reminds me, too, of, like, all of the fathers I had to endure when I was younger. You know, I remember what one girl, her father said, I don't want any bodacious behavior. <laughs> Bring my daughter home. Wow. Bodacious. Were you dating Mitt Romney's daughter? <laughs> yes. Crazy. No, wow. not, not by a long shot. <laughs> and by the way, she loved bodacious behavior. I just, yeah. <laughs> you didn't tell him that, though. No, I did not. Everything was fine. Well, if you want to act like a snob in your personal life, you have a right to. Because we learned that you go way back in public radio. 
You played a small part in the 1980 radio version of Star Wars, <laughs> which was a collaboration between NPR and George Lucas. I thought Rika was the only collaboration between NPR and George Lucas. It was, I actually used to listen to that series, and I would record it by putting another tape recorder up to the radio speakers because wow. oh we didn't God. have a tape deck. Where did, where, what cult were you in? I was the, <laughs> the cult, cult of nerddom. Yeah, the <laughs> analog <laughs> nerd cult. But you, you must have been in your early 20s then. Well, well I, it, it was after my first year in drama school. My acting teacher, my Shakespeare acting teacher's name was John Madden, and people probably know him from Shakespeare in Love, Mr. Corelli's violin, maybe. He's a he great sportscaster. Coach of the New York Giants. <laughs> yeah. Howard Cosell's violin. <laughs> but he was an awesome teacher, and he knew I was going to be out in L.A., and he said, listen, David, perhaps you'd like to do some things with us. And I was like, yeah, okay. So he hired me, and I think I made $800 for four days' work. Whoa, they paid you that much? Yeah. Yes, man. NPR has really come down <laughs> yes. in, in its pay grade. But I hung out with Mark Hamill and Frank Marshall, all these guys who were, who were associated with Star Wars, and Mark Hamill and I kind of became friends. Are you, are you still? No, but that, it's just, <laughs> it was 100 years ago. In a planet far, far away. <laughs> nice. All right, well, listen, you, you play a judge in this movie. You're going to judge our audience's I will. etiquette questions. I've already begun judging you. Here's Pamela in South Lake, Texas, and she writes, My sister and brother-in-law have some large tattoos. I would be mortified if my children ever got a tattoo. How do I make it clear to my kids that while we love my sister and brother-in-law, the tattoo thing is definitely not a choice we approve of? There's nothing she can do. It's their body. Yep. And if they're underage, that's one thing. But my advice to her, if you really don't want your kids to get a tattoo, don't lay it on so thick. I mean, mm. state your case. Um, there's lots of bad tattoo sites. You know, people yeah. have made mistakes. But in that, you're, she's probably not going to win. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a big tattoo proponent, but that's personal. Everything else my mother and father told me not to do, I ran and did. So she needs to lay off. Maybe you could, yeah. like, sort of do the reverse psychology thing where you come at them with a needle. It's like, isn't that a cool tattoo? <laughs> exactly. Don't you want one? Yeah. Mm. I, think, I think Pamela's going to take this in stride. She says, I would be mortified. But then she later says, it's definitely not a choice we approve that's, of. That's the attitude she has to have with her kids, yeah. don't you think? She can't be like, you're getting out. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. You bring home a thing on your chest. So I feel like Pamela's well on her way to having untattooed children. Good. All right. So we have another question. This one comes from Steen in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Really? That's the name? I know. I, I want it to be <laughs> Steel in Bethlehem. I think it's a typo and his name is Steven. Right. But what he a... writes, one of my coworkers has had a pretty gnarly cough for the past two and a half months. I've basically convinced myself that it's TB. How can I suggest she should get it checked out without seeming like I'm prying into her life? Let me jump in here. The problem I have with yeah, this question do. is I basically convinced myself. Okay, not my doctor girlfriend. <laughs> not my dad's a, a physician. No, I basically convinced myself. No. I would say, here's my suggestion. I actually had a bad cough that developed into pneumonia. Huh. So I would just use that. I'd say hey, why don't you get your cough checked out? Because yeah. it's true. It can develop into pneumonia. Why not be mm. safe? And on that note, you should foot the doctor. That's <laughs> <laughs> absolutely true. For being a big mouth. I wish you were here to say this because we work at a radio station. Everybody's using the same microphone. Yeah. yeah. It is amazing. Like, sicknesses rage through this office like wildfire. Rico, David's never going to come back into our studio if you keep talking like no, that. No, it's like doing a play in Porgy and Bess. This was opening weekend when I got pneumonia. 
everything that everybody else got, you got. Because we were standing in front of each other, spitting on each other and hollering and sweating all night. I think Steen's coworker just kind of has a pothead. But that's just me. <laughs> well, that's a different kind of cough, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. All right, here's something from Alex. Uh, he comes to us via Facebook. We have no idea where Alex is from. All right, let's skip that question. Alex, okay. <laughs> Next question. This comes from Allison in L.A. All right. question is, I was standing in line for the restroom, and the woman behind me asked if the designer top I was wearing was fake. My top was the real brand. How is one supposed to respond to that question? I, I have a very old school response. My mother always would tell me, uh, if you have a question like that, you respond, I hope so. It was a gift. Oh, you know, that's the old that's really nice. white glove lady response. But of course, what the implication is, is that that looks pretty cheap. All right. That's what you think. Glass half empty. Here's where I go, mister. <laughs> I go, hey, hey, girlfriend, if that if that is a fake, tell me where you got it because it looks so good. Okay. Because I can only afford the Chinatown or any other ethnic community we won't want to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> French town. Inuit. Yes, town. could be as well. <laughs> Any of but those you towns. Know what I mean? Go. Uh, here's yeah. another thing. Choose a higher class restroom facility. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Okay. Thank you. We have one question that we ask everybody on the show. Oh, this will boy. be our last question. Let me guess. What do I want God to say when I get to heaven? No, no, no. Somebody. Welcome. That's the, another guy has the patent on that. <laughs> okay. This is a question about the most memorable get together you've ever been to. Please tell us about it. Who, what, where? Details, please. All right. I, I don't think I ever told this story, but when I was about nice. 19 years old, I moved to New York. I dropped out of college. I took my guitar. I was moved to New York. I wanted to be a singer-songwriter. And literally five days after I landed, so we're talking 75, 76, it was a Rolling Thunder review. And for those of you who are too young, it was Bob Dylan wow. and uh, just a cornucopia of legends. Yeah. I walked by Folk City in the village. I wander in, and the entire Rolling Thunder review was what? there. Not wow. only them. Phil Oaks was still alive. He sang, the folk singer. Yes, he sang a song to Bob Dylan, pleading with him to stay in the room and listen. Bette Midler sang. Um, oh, what? Legend after legend. The band was there. I, everyone performed, and I wandered out about 4 or 5 in the morning. Absolutely complete. It was a gift from God this night. And, and, and it's uh, all been downhill from there. Well, in terms of the parties. You, know. you met Mark Hamill. That's true. <laughs> David Allen Greer, thanks for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you. David Allen Greer, he is in the new movie Peoples, which comes out this week. And Peoples, if you have a question for us... A designer question or a knockoff question, we won't judge. Yes, we accept and value both. Please email us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we learn something we don't know from an expert. This week, the topic is autism, and our expert is Temple Grandin. She is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University and one of the world's most well-known adults with autism. She's the author of several best-selling books on the topic. This week, she has a new book out called The Autistic Brain, Thinking Across the Spectrum. Temple, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. It is estimated that one in 88 people across the world are on the autism spectrum. 
So let's start there. Autism is a really big spectrum. At <laughs> one end of the spectrum, you've probably got Einstein, who had no language till age three, and a lot of uh, people out at Silicon Valley. And at the other end of the spectrum, you can have a very severe case of autism, nonverbal, maybe epilepsy, maybe they have difficulty dressing themselves. Are there any fictional characters that you would say are on the spectrum? Well, of course, uh, there's Ray Man, and then, of course, you got some of my favorite characters, uh, Mr. Spock on Star Trek and really? Data from us, Next Generation. <laughs> Mr. Spock is probably on the spectrum? Well, he certainly was pure logic, and I really related to Mr. Spock. <laughs> Did you watch Mr. Spock when you were younger? Did oh, you yes. Identify? Absolute Trekkie. So you were diagnosed with autism in 1947, about three years after it was first identified. And in this book, you talk about the changes in diagnosing autism and defining autism since that time. One change has come about because of our ability to scan brains. Doctors can identify abnormalities in the brain that might be able to account for certain artistic traits. Well, I think the whole diagnosis thing is a bit of a mess. And I'm um... In the next chapters of the book, uh, we discuss the new brain scanning technologies. And I had a chance to uh, get my brain scanned by Walter Schneider at the University of Pittsburgh using the new high-definition imaging yeah. where the precise fiber tracks can be um, traced. The fiber tracks in your brain. And they looked at my language output tracks, the, the track for speak what I see, speak what I hear. Yeah. And I had much smaller bandwidth. And this kind of... Um, Imaging can be used to diagnose precise language problems because I was the autistic kid that couldn't get the speech out. Another kind of autistic kid yaks, 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 and yaks all these movie scripts, yeah. but they don't know what they mean. Well, you say that your brain was uh, – the bandwidth for C to speak was smaller than most average brains. That's right. But you also had a part of your brain that was much, much bigger, 400 percent bigger. That's the visual That's a visual brain. track. Yes. Huge, big visual what, track. What does that mean for you? Well, I think totally in pictures. When I think about things, I see pictures. I don't think in words. Mm. And then there's other kids that probably have got things in mathematics that are bigger. My mathematics department's kind of full of cerebral spinal fluid, and that's another scan that's shown in the autistic brain mm. book. But you get these uneven skills. And when I was young, I didn't know my thinking was different. I thought everybody thought in pictures. Well, give us an example that when you, were, when you knew you were coming in for a public radio interview – what kind of images went through your brain? Any? I'm seeing images. And mm -hmm. I can remember the first Fresh Air show I was on for my Thinking in Pictures book. And they had me in an older station. I think it was Knoxville, Tennessee. It's a long time ago. And the mic stand kept going down. And I didn't know much about radio stations. And, and now I would just push it back up. But I was afraid to touch it. And yeah. by the time that interview was over, my head was just about on the table. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And I'm remembering that very well. In your book, one aspect of autism that you feel isn't getting enough attention are sensory problems. Yes. Explain the sort of sensory problems people with autism encounter. Sensory issues can vary from nuisances to being totally debilitating. When I was a young kid, loud sounds hurt my ears. Mm -hmm. I still have problems with scratchy clothes. I mean, there's some types of clothing I cannot wear against my skin. Your wardrobe, you select basically because you don't like the feeling of certain materials on your skin? Well, I have to wear some of my Western shirts. I have to wear a long-sleeved yeah. T-shirt under them. Yeah, this is radio, but you have a great Western shirt on with a great red bandana as well. Yeah, well, I like my Western shirts, but I have found that um, some cotton itches, other cotton doesn't yeah. itch. Now, because got to have soft things against my skin. Could someone else with autism maybe have trouble with the color red? You have a bright red scarf on. Could that Possibly. Be? You could have ones that have visual problems have problems with bright contrast. Like, mm -hmm. for example, if a hotel room had a checkerboard floor, 
that would drive them crazy. Hmm. Um, fluorescent lights is probably one of the worst things in offices. A lot of people, to, in order to successfully work at a job, would need a quiet place to work. I'd have problems with an open office environment just being too noisy. But the theme of your book seems to be to focus on the strengths yes. instead of the deficits. That's right. And you say that that's a shift in kind of thinking around We've offices. got to emphasize the strengths. And my ability in art was always encouraged. And that started showing up when I was in third or fourth grade. And I was encouraged to do pictures of lots of different things. Yeah. Not the same horse head over and over and over and over again. We've got to build on strengths. So one last question. Our show is called The Dinner Party. I wonder what dinner parties are like for you. My uh, mother had dinner issues. parties. And one of the things I did when I was very little to help teach me social skills was I had to put on my little Sunday school dress and I had to shake hands with every guest correctly with the correct amount of pressure, look them in the eyes, and serve more d'oeuvres. Wow. And that was really a good thing to be doing. And I was doing that when I was about eight years old. Was that painful for you? No, I actually kind of enjoyed it because it was a grown-up activity. And I needed to be on my best behavior. And my mother's dinner parties weren't that noisy. I mean, she might have six couples come over to the house and they'd be sitting around the living room talking and then I had to learn, well, you can't be pushing the hors d'oeuvres in front of them every 30 seconds. You know, you got to space it out yeah. right. The other thing, you got to teach these kids how to take turns, too. That was taught to me with board games. Yeah, that seems to be a through line in the book. Turn-taking games are very important for young kids with Well, autism. and they've got to learn how to wait in line and wait the turn. Temple Grandin, thanks so much for coming by. Well, thank you so much for having me. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week. But ladies and gentlemen, the show does not end on the airwaves. That is true. He is not lying. You can catch us online and via podcast anytime. In fact, this week we are releasing our 200th podcast. Hooray. And to celebrate, we've assembled an entire show full of icebreaker jokes from the last two years. Yes, it is wall-to-wall jokes about guys walking into bars, various methods of screwing in light bulbs, etc. All told by an army of celebrities, including Tony Hawk, Brian Cranston, James Frank, and more. It is only available via podcast, so find it on iTunes or at dinnerpartydownload.org. Jackson Musker is our assistant producer. Our interns are Tamika Adams, Davey Kim, and Brittany Martin. Thanks also to Brendan Willard and Charlton Thorpe. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. The music blogosphere has spilled oodles of ones and zeros over London-based post-punk band Savages. This week, the female four-piece finally released their debut album. It's called Silence Yourself, and here's a track from it called Shut Up. Also, Bon Appetit. Silence Yourself.
Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And now, Public Radio's Star Wars. Let's do the galactic numbers. The Dow James Earl Jones dropped a million points on where the Death Star blew off Alderaan. Shares in hyperspace giant Alderaan Royal Engineers disintegrated 92%. But the force is with the moisture sector. Rains on Tatooine pushed evaporator sales to new highs. And you're listening to Market Wars.